At Global Genes, we know a rare diagnosis changes everything. You weren't given a playbook on how to cope, how to take that next step, and you certainly weren't handed a blueprint on how to build an advocacy organization or successfully bring a therapy to market. The good news is that rare disease advocates are some of the most inspiring, innovative activists on the planet. And Global Genes works to bring the community together to share best practices, create important introductions, and help catalyze powerful collaborations. That's why Global Genes would like to invite you to join us for the fourth annual Rare Patient Advocacy Summit on September 24th and 25th in Huntington Beach, California. The goal of this year's summit is for patients, caregivers, and advocates to walk away equipped with actionable next steps, whether you've been recently diagnosed or building a disease community, thinking about funding early stage research, actively engaged in developing a treatment, or have been advocating in rare diseases for decades. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org forward slash 2015 summit. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Travis Flores has had a lifelong battle with cystic fibrosis, a genetic disease that causes a buildup of mucus in the lungs and other organs and can lead to respiratory failure and problems in breaking down food and absorbing nutrients. Flores, who recently underwent a double lung transplant, continues to pursue his interest as an artist, philanthropist, and patient advocate. We spoke to Flores about his experiences how rather than being a barrier, his disease has served as a source of motivation, and how he's learned to live with rather than for his disease. Travis, thanks for joining us. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. We're going to discuss your, your various activities as an author, artist, philanthropist, as well as a cystic fibrosis patient advocate. I'd like to start with your own experience, though, with cystic fibrosis for listeners who may not be familiar with the disease. Can you explain what it is, what causes it, how it manifests itself, and the prognosis for uh, people? Well, cystic fibrosis, I think it's important for people to know, first of all, that it's a different case for every patient. Um, First of all, there's different mutations of cystic fibrosis. Some people live their entire lives without too much uh, complications, but some people are like me and they have a very aggressive form of cystic fibrosis and they get sick often early in their life and end up needing uh, advanced treatment later on like I did. Um, Cystic fibrosis, uh, it's genetic. Uh, You're you're born with it and as as you get older, you tend to experience what I used to call um, really bad colds that would last for a long time. It's actually how I described it as a kid. I used to say it's like having a cold that never goes away. Um, and I would go into the hospital, you know, for three or four weeks at a time uh, and receive these uh, these very, very um, heavy antibiotics through uh, an IV. And sometimes, sometimes they worked and sometimes we had to find other things uh, to try and counteract the infections. But 
ultimately it led to me having to uh, make a decision to get a double lung transplant in order to save my life this, this year. Well, you were diagnosed with the disease at a, at a young age, just four months. In, in a yeah, sense, four months. It's, it's all you've known. What was it like to grow up with cystic fibrosis? What what impact did it have on your life? You know, I love this question because, you know, I I don't know any different. So for me, this has always kind of been my life. Um, I think the impact it had on me was just that, you know, I kind of lived this fast-track life. I, I, I saw life as um, an opportunity to accomplish great things, and it didn't matter what age you were, so... I started doing a lot very young to the point that, you know, I ended up getting my master's degree by the time I was 21, 2022. And, you know, it's, it's, it's been a great, great, um, adventure. And, and a lot of people with cystic fibrosis, I feel, don't think they can do stuff like that. And I think, um, I think they can, it's just a matter of the, the way that they're raised and the way that they, um, view their life. And I saw it as an opportunity. Well, at age eight, you were hospitalized and came in contact with other mm-hmm. children who had cystic fibrosis. You yeah. began writing a, a children's book, The Spider Who Never Gave Up at that time. It was eventually published with the Make-A-Wish Foundation. What's the book about and, and who is it intended for? Well, um, so what happened was is I came into contact with these patients who um, who didn't have much hope. And it was, it was a very strange feeling for me because I was pouncing off the walls in the hospital. Um, I, I thought it was fun because I was getting free food. I was, you know, not having to go to school. Um, but then I, I, I had a moment with a patient where I realized, you know, this is, this is a very, very serious situation for them. And I didn't really know how to process that. So I went back to my room and I wrote this book about perseverance and I took something that I was horrified. I still am today. I'm terrified of spiders, but I took something that I was horrified of and turned it into something positive. And um, that was the whole point was taking a bad experience and trying to make the most of it. And, um, you know, when, when Make-A-Wish approached me to, um, to do the book, I, it, it was not a question in my mind. It was, yeah, let's do it. And I had no idea that it was going to explode and become what it is today. Well, after the book was published, you went on a, a three-year book tour to share your story. What was yeah. that experience like, particularly coming into contact with, with other children with chronic and rare diseases? It was the best experience of my entire life. I'll cherish every single event, every single person, um, every single book that I was able to give to somebody. Um, there were so many people across the United States and in Canada and uh, Puerto Rico. I mean, it was such an incredible experience to be able to to be that young and to be able to make an impact. I mean, I remember at first being very confused when I would get letters in the mail um, from people saying how the book either saved their life or it helped them through a really, really difficult time that had nothing to do with chronic illness. Um, and it just, it, it, it kind of made me realize that the, the ability to go on a book tour and to continue writing and put stuff out there for people was a responsibility. And um, I had to be careful with what I did with that. So when I met chronic kids, I, it was really important for me to to kind of show them that um, that experience is an experience that they can have too. It's just a matter of uh, believing in themselves. And I wanted them to um, 
to read the book and to feel inspired, not just about their disease and fighting it, but inspired about their life and the things that they can accomplish in it. How did that shape your perspective on what you wanted to do with your own life? You know, I always say that the book, um, the book was a great experience, but really what shaped my, my life was make a wish in specifically because I, I love the arts. I love um, writing. I love acting and the whole creative process. But honestly, no matter what I do in my life, there will always be one um, one thing that's always a part of it, and that is the charity work I have with Make-A-Wish. It's, um, I studied acting and writing in my undergrad, but ultimately I went and got my master's degree in fundraising and grant making because the importance of charity work in my life just is above all else the most important thing. Um, so make a wish truly, I, I give them complete total credit for who I am today because I don't know who I would be without them. Well, as you mentioned, you've been quite active in philanthropy. You've raised more than a million dollars for your causes. And in 2005, you launched your own children's foundation. What does the foundation do? Um, the foundation originally it was called the Travis Flores Children's Foundation. Um, and then a couple of years ago, I, we went through a rebranding process because I felt it was important for people to see the organization as um, a charity and not um, an individual. So I changed it to Strengthline Foundation. And what we do is we provide laptop uh, computers or iPads, um, technology essentially to kids who are isolated in the hospital. And um, the best part about my organization, I think, is we don't take the technology away from them if they end up going into remission or they end up... Um, you know, having not having to be in the hospital as long as they expect it to be. They get to keep the technology forever. It's theirs. Um, my best experience that I could share with you is we had a patient who was, um, who was deaf, and he had never met another CF patient who could actually communicate with him. And I know sign language. I'm fluent. And um, I was communicating with him, and there was so much that he didn't understand because you know, no one's really taken the time to sit down and explain to him the disease. And I just, I, I had to help him. So I went and got an iPad for him and downloaded an app where nurses and doctors could speak into the iPad and it would sign to him. And then he can type back his responses. I mean, little, little things like that can change somebody's life. And it did change his life. He's, um, he's doing really well and he's getting his organ transplant hopefully very soon. As you've managed to accomplish all the things you have, you've had to continue to fight with the disease. There's a a YouTube video from earlier in the year, and it's a little tough to watch because you're so breathless as you speak. It's announcing mm-hmm. that you had been placed on a donor recipient list, and you have since, as you mentioned, had a, a double lung transplant. How did that yeah. go, and, and how's your health today? Um, you know, it's, it, I still find it, it hard to talk about that video. Um, it was a very vulnerable moment for me to share that with everyone because what people don't know about that is I had been sick for a couple of years. Um, it just progressed very quickly the summer before I posted that video. And it was a very um, big decision for me to, to open up and tell people about what was going on because I had been so private about it for so long. Um, but... I'm very happy that I did it, and my health today is just so fantastic. And I truly, 
give so much credit to the people who supported me through that process because I had an entire wall full of cards from people all over the world telling me to keep fighting. And uh, it's emotional because there's, there's moments in that hospital when you're waiting for an organ transplant and you have four false calls before the actual one happens, um, which is different for everyone. Mine was four false calls. But after a fourth false call, you're kind of, you know, you're, you're kind of losing a little hope there, and, and you're, you're so sick, and I, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't even walk from my bed to the bathroom. It was just, it was very, very painful, and um, people kept me going, and I'm so grateful for that. Well, it's quite a remarkable gift to, to get a, a pair of lungs. What would you say to people considering becoming a, a donor? Um, it's obviously a very personal decision. Um, and I don't think it's a decision people should just make quickly. I think they need to think about it. Because I think if they think about it, they will say yes. Because organ donation is essentially the last gift you can ever give in your life, um, even after your life, technically. And it's, a, it's almost like a legacy that you can leave behind. And I think by people making the decision to be an organ donor, they're heroes. Um, I am so beyond grateful to my donor and uh, his family and his friends because of that selfless gift on March 2nd to donate his lungs on March 3rd to me. Lungs that are transplanted are free of cystic fibrosis, but the disease still exists elsewhere in your body. How does the disease impact someone with a lung transplant, and what is your prognosis? Um, so, yeah, that, that's actually a really good question that a lot of people don't realize. Cystic fibrosis, it, it's still very much in my body because it's genetic, but the lungs I have obviously aren't my lungs. They're, they're different genes, and, and they're... Um, they're not affected by the CF in the same way that my other lungs were. I have other sets of problems, such as um, diabetes. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously we have to watch for rejection for my entire life. But uh, the cystic fibrosis itself really only manifests in um, my weight right now. Um, I still struggle to gain weight, which is interesting because a lot of transplant patients gain a lot of weight very quickly. Um, but I've, I've struggled to, to continue to put on weight. Um, and you know, the prognosis, I, I've never been one to actually even listen to a prognosis because I think, uh, you know, a doctor can tell you what's going on in your health and what they kind of see for your future. But at the end of the day, you know, I was told I'd let to be five and I'm 24. So I, it, prognosis is just uh, a statement of someone's belief of your life. And for me, my prognosis right now, in my opinion, is fantastic. I can hike Runyon Canyon in Los Angeles, California, and not even think about it. And it's incredible. Well, w w what's ahead for you? Um, I have a few projects. I'm working on, um, I, I mean, this is actually the first time I'm going to be saying this, but I'm working on a memoir that will hopefully be out um, very soon, not this year, but um my goal would be to have it out on the anniversary of my transplant. If not this coming anniversary, it's been the two-year anniversary of my transplant. Um, but it's, it's been a very, very uh, amazing creative process. I started writing these short, fictional-type um, stories a couple years ago, and then I realized how much I missed writing because um, I had given a break when I was focusing on education. Um, but then 
last year when I started getting really, really sick, I, I needed an outlet. And I remember I, you know, I, I truly love writing. So I started writing these short stories and turned into like a, almost like an anthology. It's, um, it's just these different pieces of my life that I really cannot wait for people to, to read. And there's actually some pieces on my Facebook fan page that I've already put up there because I wanted to see if people were interested and it's had a great response. So my focus right now is, um, is that, you know, I, I want to get that out there so people can, can read about what I went through and maybe feel inspired to do something uh, for themselves or for someone else that they know that's going through something similar. Um, charity work's always a part of my life. Um, we obviously have the rare disease awards coming up and then make a wish. I have some events with them. Um, and then, you know, when it comes to acting, I, I take projects as they come and, um, there's been a few things that have come up recently and I'm really excited to see where they go. But, you know, first and foremost is the charity and, and, uh, the writing right now. Many people facing a, a rare disease such as yours can be overwhelmed by it and in many ways it comes to define their lives. You've been able, it, it appears, to really be motivated by it and accomplish a lot. Yeah. What what advice would you give others with rare diseases for living their lives yeah. beyond their diseases? I would give them the same advice that I was given uh, many years ago by um, Dr. Constant in Cleveland, Ohio. I was starting to become sick uh, very quickly. And uh, luckily, they put me on an antibiotic that, that was able to fix what was happening. But I was very scared about how much time I was spending in the hospital and how I wasn't able to do the things that I was doing the year prior, which was a book tour. Um, and he looked at me and he said, you know what? You need to live, live with CF, not for CF. And I would tell that to anyone else facing any kind of limitation in their life, whether it is a rare disease or um, some people facing poverty, you need to live with the limitation, not for it. And uh, if you do that, then you'll find ways to to really just um, make the most of that situation and end up coming out on top. Travis Flores, author, actor, and philanthropist. Travis, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me, and I hope everyone considers being an organ donor if they aren't already. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.